Um, to start my talk, I'd like to play a very profound, very deep, very moving movie clip uh, from the movie Cars. Um, so, so um, would you mind playing that for me? Okay, here we go. Focus, speed. I am speed. One winner, 42 losers. I eat losers for breakfast. Breakfast? Maybe I should have had breakfast. A little brekkie could be good for me. No, 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 stay focused. Speed. I'm faster than fast, quicker than quick. I am lightning. So speed, I am speed. One winner, 42 losers, I'm lightning. I love that start to the movie. I think I've watched that heaps of times. I'm not really a cars person generally, but I really like that movie. And, uh, and hopefully you've seen it too. So, um, in this movie, obviously Cars 1, the very kind of popular Disney movie, there's Lightning McQueen. He's a red hot race car. He's got plenty of speed and attitude to burn and he's young, he's arrogant, he only cares about himself. Perfect character for a movie. Uh, so it's the grand final of the Piston Cup and although Lightning McQueen is a rookie race car, he's odds on favourite to win the whole thing and this is the last race of the season. So he goes off to a great start, he uses speed, he uses skill and he outmanoeuvres the pack and pretty quickly he's just one lap to go, he's way ahead of the pack, he's a shoe in to win, everyone knows the ending. But there's an unexpected twist. Uh, on McQueen's last turn, the last corner of the last lap, suddenly his back left tyre explodes and he kind of shoots out of control. And then all of a sudden his other tyres burst, boom, boom, boom and he's basically left completely stranded with no tyres just in front of the finish line with no, no, no momentum, he can't move, he can't roll and he's completely stuck. The crowd is entirely stunned, they can't believe what's happening except for McQueen's pit crew who throw down their spanners and they say, what an idiot! <laughs> and he was an idiot because as the audience, we know exactly why, his tyres have exploded. So the backstory is that McQueen has been going and going and going and he's been refusing every single few laps to actually stop and have a pit stop. He's not filling up his tank, he's not changing his tyres and then they suddenly explode. And so look, the finale of this whole uh, beginning scene is pretty funny and it's fantastic. So all the cars are coming forward and McQueen suddenly kind of starts to hop and he's hopping his way ever so slowly, inch by inch, to the finish line and in the end the two leaders next to him come forward and it's a three-way tie because he sticks out his tongue and they all have a three-way tie which you know sets off the whole process of, of the movie which ended up becoming a trilogy for uh, the movie of Cars. So, <coughs> McQueen, Lightning McQueen, He's a parable for our age, isn't he? Never rest, never stop, go, 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 no limits, and then <laughs> crash. He starts with speed and he ends with exhaustion. He starts with activity and he ends with anxiety. Um, I think the parallels with our culture, with our lives, is actually really obvious. We go, 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 all week, every week, month by month, um, and then we suddenly crash, brain dead on the couch, you know, vegging out in front of Netflix, maybe half sick. Um, now, I looked up um, 
you know, uh, what was it, Couch Potato on Google, and I found this clip, which I thought was great. I found a few, I saw, I didn't know which one to pick. So I like this lady who's in her PJs, looking pretty miserable. And my favourite is the uh, Asian student who's fallen asleep with his Mac. Just uh, <laughs> probably not great for his neck. But um, there's the parable of Lightning McQueen for our culture. So look, our culture is busy, we know this. We know we're busy, we're anxious, and we're heading in the wrong direction. The statistics on work and rest in Australia are quite staggering, they're quite interesting. I've read a number of studies, a number of books on this. So one quote worth reading is from, hmm, where's my quote? Here we are. Uh, from the Australian Work and Life Index, which is a measure of um, work-life balance in Australia. So 61% of Australian working women and 47% of Australian working men report that they are almost always rushed and pressed for time. Now look, that's significant. That's not sometimes rushed a bit, sometimes busy. It's almost always rushed, anxious, busy, time poor, always stretched, always pushing the envelope of work. Um, and look, we feel it too. We feel this in our bones. Um, so look, I'm going to talk today about the order of rest and the priority of rest. And it actually follows a series that I'd, I've started called uh, The Rhythms of Rest, which is how to rest deeply in an age of anxiety. We talked uh, last fortnight about uh, what it means to create a rhythm of rest, uh, to be yoked with Jesus, to know the pattern and the person of Jesus. We're going to talk about the order of rest today. And look, we know that we feel something in our bones in terms of busyness. As I said before, it's pretty common to say, how are you? I'm busy. It's kind of just the default reply for many of us, and it's really true. Uh, for some of us, it's work, and we just work really complex jobs. We either overwork, you know, 45, 50, 60, 70 hours a week. I work with lots of people in my consulting role who work 70 hours a week every week, and they have families. Um, it's exhausting. Um, for us, you know, obviously, if, if you're working that many hours every week, there's just not much space left for anything else. But you don't have to be a full-time worker or an exhausted full-time worker uh, to feel busy, do you? I mean, there's parenting, and parenting's tiring as well. <laughs> so you have young kids, you've got nappies, you've got, you know, crash, you've got sleepless nights, all that kind of stuff that happens being a young parent. Uh, if, you've, if you're an older parent, a parent with older kids, sorry, you've got school drop-offs, you've got you know, sports, you've got all these different events that you have, and that can make you feel pretty busy. Um, students are busy as well. There's competition to perform, there's study, there's all these different exams, plus a lot of students are now working to kind of pay for themselves in part-time jobs. And even retirees are busy. I mean, there's volunteering, there's work with grandkids and babysitting and care, there's all the different things that you have on your plate. Um, and there's health, health issues for yourself, health issues for others. So, so no matter who we are in our culture, many of us feel busy. And um, in many ways, we're a culture that is running on empty. Uh, we have no tyres. We're hopping towards the finish line, maybe sticking out our tongue, just to get over the line day by day on a Friday afternoon. So look, we need another way. Bottom line is we need another way. We need a guide, we need direction, we need uh, someone to show us a way through not away from our busyness, but someone who can teach us a way through um, busyness in our culture. And look, that, that is God. It's God we need to look at. It's God's Word that we need to soak in, and it's Christ. So what I want to do is uh, look at uh, the very first manuscript uh, of the very first book that we call the, the Bible, which is our Old Testament, which we split into Old and New. The Old 
is the bit that is indirectly about Jesus and the new is the bit that is directly about Jesus, uh, but it's one story with many manuscripts. And so I'm going to start with the very first one, the book of Genesis, which in Hebrew means origin. And I think we can gain something about uh, an understanding about the pattern and the order of rest that God has put into creation. So let me start with Genesis 1. Uh, So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the beginning, there was nothing. Nothing to see, nothing to hear, nothing to do. Just emptiness, blackness, void. Nothing at all, except the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God was even in the nothingness. And then, God spoke. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, and He said it was good. And He separated light from darkness... God called the light day and he called the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So basically God speaks and when he speaks, he creates. He's the creator and he creates, he works. And when he creates, he creates something out of nothing and there's a pattern in the way he creates. There's a pattern in his creation. There's light and there's darkness, there's day and there's night. There's a pattern. Uh, And the rest of the creation story, if um, you haven't read it before... Uh, God continues to speak for six days and stuff just continues to happen. Uh, He creates light and darkness. He creates water and sky. He creates land and sea. He creates fish. He creates animals. So there's a pattern. There's an order in the way he creates. And it's all good. And then on the sixth day, God creates something very special. He creates humans, man and woman. Pattern and order. And it is very good. Not just good, he thinks we're very good, which is lovely. Um, so let's read from Genesis 1, 31, 2 to 3. God saw that all he had made. God saw all he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. So by the seventh day, God had finished all he had been doing. On the seventh day, he rested from all his work. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. There's a lot in this passage. I mean, this is the beginning of the scriptures. There's so much here and I can't unpack it all theologically, but I just want to point out two small points from what we've read about the order of creation. Firstly, there is an order. There's a pattern in the way that God creates. Light and dark, male and female, creator, creator. Um, there's also a pattern. And, and that pattern, it's not just a pattern, but that pattern involves rest, which I think is absolutely remarkable. So, you know, God created the heavens and the earth, land and sea, birds and animals, men and women, men and women, and there's a pattern embedded in creation, which is pretty remarkable to begin with. There's a rhythm, there's a cadence, you know what I mean? It's a pattern. But rest is part of that pattern. It's absolutely integral. It's central to what it means to be fully human, which is remarkable if you think about it. I mean, 
theologically, like if I was creating a religion, I wouldn't put rest as one of my central things. It just, it, God creates this break in time and he transforms what time means for humanity right at the very beginning of the scriptures. And we, we need to own that and learn from that. So rest is part of the pattern. It's fundamental to what it means to be human. It's imprinted in our spirit, in our very being, and it's the way we're meant to be. If we break that pattern, we break ourselves. We become like Lightning McQueen. We end up with no tires. Um, and so there's also, there's also an order to the way that pattern happens. So God worked for six days and then he rested from all his work, which is interesting. So firstly, I think it's interesting. So God is the almighty. He's the creator of heaven and earth. I mean, it's God. <laughs> he speaks and all this, like the entire universe comes into being. So, so God is a creator. He works and yet he chose to change his tires. It's interesting, isn't it? Our God changed his tires, which to me sounds strange, but, but he did. So he's not the God of hyperactivity. He's not the God of workaholism. He's the God of creation. It's a holy work and a holy rest. So that's the first thing about who God is. And the second thing, which is equally interesting, is that for humans, the very first day of our existence, it wasn't work, was it? It was rest. We were created on God's day of rest, on his Sabbath. That's Adam and Eve's very first day of existence was a day of rest. If God rested, I can't, it's inconceivable to me that Adam and Eve worked on God's day of rest. So we have a different pattern and a different order. Humans start with rest and they end with work. God started with work and ended with rest. Do you follow? It's different. And we see this pattern throughout the scriptures actually. Rest before work, work from rest. It's an order in creation. It's a rhythm of Sabbath. It's the pattern of humanity. It's the pattern to be truly human. And really it's about acknowledging that we are not God. We're not God. We're finite. We're human. We're limited. So we start with rest. We are not the creator. We are the created beings. And so our pattern begins with reliance on the one who created us. It's beautiful. I actually think it's really beautiful and it's a different order than the order that we experience day by day in our culture that is hyperactive, hyper-individualized and hyper-busy all the time. So God is the creator. We're not. He's limitless, but we are limited. He's all-knowing, he's all-present and we are finite. He needs uh, no sleep well, maybe he does, I don't know, but we need sleep, we need rest, we, we need to rejuvenate and do all the things that give us life. And, and one of the things I've really wrestled with, because I mean, look, I love working, I love the calling that God's put on my life in business and in ministry, so I love to be active, and yet one of the things I've realised is that to enter God's order of rest, to rest and then work, rather than work and then crash on the couch in front of Netflix, it, to work in that order is an act of faith. It's actually an act of trusting in God because it's actually saying, God, I'm not you. And I'm going to trust that when I put down my tools and start with rest, then I'll allow you to make me productive in my life. I'm actually going to start with faith. It's the same idea as tithing. We start by giving our best money to God and then we trust that he'll provide. It's the same with our time. We start by giving God our time and we trust that he will somehow do something in faith. It's an acknowledgement that we're humans and not God and that he will bless us as we enter in his rest. 
by ordering that in our lives first. It's challenging for us all, I think, but it's beautiful at the same time. So in the words of Mike Breen, um, we must learn to follow the pattern of Jesus to work from a place of rest and not rest from a place of work. So work from rest, not rest from work. It's a pattern that we see in creation. It's also a pattern we see in Christ. We see it in Jesus' life as well. I'll be brief, but um, Jesus had an order to his life as well and it fits the order of creation, the order of Adam and Eve, the order of working from rest. He started with rest and moved to work. Now, the question I ask is, was Jesus productive? Because productivity is the question we all want to know. I mean, was Jesus productive? And I'd say, yes, he was. Uh, He healed the sick, he raised the dead, he loved the unlovable, he changed and challenged political powers, he tackled religious hypocrisy, he taught crowds, he discipled leaders, he created community, he transformed the world in a way that no person has ever transformed the world, he was unbelievably productive and he only had three years of ministry. It's remarkable, isn't it? But again, the mechanism and the order by which Jesus ministered was different than the way we see in the world around us He wasn't a workaholic, he wasn't hyperactive, he worked from a place of abiding, of rest, of being centred with the Father and from that place he was able to actually be productive. So each day he began with silence and solitude and with prayer. He connected every single morning first with God the Father, didn't he? He retreated to a mountainside, he spent time abiding, resting, listening And that allowed him to have that personal transformation that allowed him then to lean into his work for the day, which was very busy. It was a daily pattern. It was a daily order. Every week, Jesus kept Sabbath. Um, He set aside a full day of rest and remembrance along with all the other Jewish people. Now, he redefined what Sabbath meant and yet he still kept it. And I'm going to talk about that more and more in the next few sermons that actually Sabbath needs to be redefined for our day and age. Uh, We need to know that the Sabbath was made for man, but... Uh, not man for the Sabbath, but the thing is that the Sabbath was made for man. Uh, So it's not, we'll we'll talk about that actually, I won't go into detail, but I get excited, so I should hold that story. Um, He started each day with Sabbath and that was his rest for the week and then annually he took part in the Jewish celebrations of Passover which supported his identity and nourished his soul. So there was this daily, this weekly, this annual pattern of rest where he started with prayer and worship and silence and solitude, connection with the Father, and then from there became the most productive human who had ever walked the earth. It's beautiful. There was a pattern, there was an order, um, and he invites us to do the same. So as I said, look, I work in productivity in my uh, bivocational career. I, I lead a company and we do strategic planning and productivity consulting with leaders. And, and so in terms of the productivity theory, I mean, pretty much everything I read in productivity theory that works matches what Jesus said anyway, which is beautiful. But um, in productivity theory, we teach people to consider three different rhythms or perspectives in their life. Uh, whether that be the way they do you know, emails and lists or whether it be the way they rest from their technologies, like it, it all works the same way. So we ask people to consider their annual rhythms, their weekly rhythms and their daily rhythms um, and that is something to address if you want to be more productive. So you know, annually is about looking at the seasonal patterns, the patterns of the ebb and flow of day-to-day life. Uh, it's about 
not looking at the seasons, you know, summer, autumn, winter, and winter, spring, and working out where do your habits fit annually. Weekly rhythms is about you know, what's, what are those weekly patterns, uh, that kind of those central patterns that shape your week, not necessarily your day, where there's a big enough perspective that you can actually create some amazing patterns over time, but not you know, reactive like the daily perspective. And then the daily rhythms is, you know, what do you do every day? How do you start the day? What do you do with your email? What do you do with your time? When do you have your coffee break? You know, it's more of a reactive day-by-day -day space. So those three perspectives are important. And so I'm going to start today with the annual perspective as I talk about how to apply this rhythm in practice in our lives. And I'll talk about Sabbath, which is the weekly rhythm, in more detail next time we talk, and then the daily rhythms. But the Sabbath is the hardest one to keep, I believe, in today's culture. Um, so, look, I, I remember, this is the annual perspective. Uh, so, look, I remember doing a team consult a few years ago um, with the business that I run, and we were asked to work with a team who was basically unhealthy. They were a bit toxic. Um, they didn't trust each other, uh, they weren't being productive, they weren't hitting their KPIs. And so we were asked to assess the team health, we were asked to diagnose their pain points, and then we were asked to provide recommendations to the CEO about how we can improve this pretty important uh, senior team. And so, look, we did interviews, we, we did kind of group consultation, did some training and teaching and one-on-one -on -one with the leader. And at the end of the day, it became really, really clear what the problem was. There's always a few problems, but there's always one kind of central problem. And in this case, with this team, the problem was that the senior leader was dysfunctional. And so the leadership team was dysfunctional. And so this person, they worked incredibly hard. They were very, very dedicated to their job. They worked 70 hours a week, every single week, and they just pounded the work. They were smart, and they were educated, and they were hungry. But they were terrible at their job, <laughs> and they were destroying the team. They were tired, and they were exhausted all the time. They just didn't sleep enough. They were focusing on all the wrong things. They would say, okay, well, this is our direction strategically. And then the next week, oh, this is the direction strategically. And then someone would go in this direction, and they would forget that they actually mentioned that, and they'd be going this direction, because their brain was tired. Um, they were focusing on the wrong things, they were micromanaging, uh, and at the same time, they were a bottleneck, stopping everything happening. So, look, it was just disastrous. So, look, the bottom line is that leader was smashed, and everyone knew it except for the leader themselves. And so we spoke to the CEO, and our core recommendation was that this leader had to go on holidays, which was not what we expected. It was not what the CEO expected, but he agreed with us when we explained our logic. And so we said, this person's not taking their annual leave, they need to take four weeks off as soon as possible. The interesting thing is, we went to that senior leader and we said, okay, well, this is our recommendation. We've done like two months of assessment. You need to take a holiday. And they're like, oh, they were quite surprised. But we showed them the research, we explained the, the diagnosis. And they, they just said, oh, look, I know that I'm tired. I know that I'm overworked. Um, I know that I'm slowing the team down. I know that I've been chopping and changing and that I haven't been thinking as straight as I could. But honestly, it's impossible. Like, I've got this massive project coming up. I've got all this stuff on my plate. I've got these meetings for the next three months. But when things slow down, then I'll take a holiday. <laughs> They've been, saying it for, they've been saying it ever since. The team's still terrible and they're still smashed. Um, 
But it's interesting because while that's a bit of an extreme example, I hear it all the time. In fact, Barbara Pocock, in her Australian research of people who work more than 45 hours a week, said that the majority, oh, 40 percent, say that they are too busy to take a holiday, and the number one reason they give is because they are just too busy to stop. And it's ironic because the thing is that stopping is what actually allows us to work well. It's embedded in creation. If we break the order of creation, we break ourselves and we break the teams that we lead under us. So, practically, if you struggle to take holidays, look, hopefully it's not too many here in this room. So these are more principles on the extreme end, I realise that. But, but if you struggle to take holidays, or probably, you know, if you're someone who finds you hit, let's say, November or October or December, and you basically feel smashed, and you're kind of crawling across the finish line with your tongue sticking out, and it happens year in, year out, um, then let's go back to the order of creation and the order of Christ. And I recommend that you book your holidays before you book your work. It's a really simple life hack. And I found it really, really useful. So what does it mean to book your holidays at the beginning of every year before you book your work? So this is my pattern with Kylie and my family. Um, so look, when, it, when we hit January every year, we make sure that our entire year of holidays is locked in advance. Because annually, we want to make sure that we prioritise rest and then we allow work to happen. So before anything goes in our calendar, any meetings, any any engagements, any travel trips, all that kind of stuff, any ministry stuff, any any... Um, training, that all comes in after we lock in our holidays because our rest comes before our work. It's the principle that I see. And so for us, we have two weeks where we're just chilling out, spending time as a family. Sometimes we travel and have fun. But I know if I look at my seasonal rhythm, I get really tired and grumpy uh, around well, the whole year, I don't know, don't say anything, Kylie. No, around April. Um, so around April, I get pretty tired. I think it's probably the post-Easter, I don't know, mad beginning of the year. And then, and then certainly after the long, dark winter around August, September, I find that, you know, I just feel drained. So we preempt a week of holidays during those times where there's that rhythm in the year. We make sure we go away to a place on the east coast of Tassie. There's no internet. We have an outdoor bath. Uh, you know, there's just a wood fire and all we can do is read books, you know, ride, hang out at the beach and spend time as a family, which is really nice. And in the middle sometime, I make sure that Kai and I get to go away for at least three days. So it's not the only holidays and breaks we have, but at least we lock in our core rest and then allow things to flow out of it. Look, it's not gospel, but it's a useful life hack. Um, the other thing that I've found really helpful is the mindset of rest. So not only is it helpful to practically lock in your rest before you lock in your work each year, but it can be really useful to have a mindset. So what I mean by that is I used to go on holidays and think, oh, I'm so busy and I just want to escape it all and just chill out, which is great. You know, we make sure we plan um, in those one-week periods, particularly times which aren't just fun and adventurous, but they're actually restful. But the mindset was I felt like I was kind of escaping God and I realised there's a difference between having a rest with God versus having a rest from God. Or there's a difference between having a holiday with God versus a holiday from God. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Like, so, so what I mean by that is, you know, when I'm on holidays, I'm not just trying to leave behind God and just do my own thing and then when I get back, you know, from a holiday, oh God, I'm back again. <laughs> you know, there's a sense where, actually God, I want to come with a mindset where I'm inviting you into my space or I'm entering your space 
and, and I'm allowing there to be some silence and solitude or some scripture or journaling or, or times when I'm just hanging out with God. I might break my rhythms in terms of, you know, I don't read the Bible every day in the way I do when I'm at home, but I just make sure my mindset is trying to think, how do I have a holiday with you, Jesus? Um, does that make sense? And it's been really powerful for me to think through that, not only locking in rest, but doing that too. So, to finish on a practical note on this section, am I resting from God or, uh, is, or resting with God? Um, so here's some questions. Let's pause for a moment for the introverts in the room and just reflect. So when will you have holidays this year? Where will you go and how will it be restful? What does it mean for you to rest with God rather than rest from God? And, and look, if you're someone who's great at holidays, you feel like this is not really connecting with you, then I'd, I'd ask you to just think through the principle of what does it mean to rest and then work, to, to work from a place of rest, to create that order in your life daily or weekly or annually. Uh, so Holy Spirit, we pray that you will speak to us now and, and speak to our heart and our spirit and our soul and I pray that you will help us to know what is one thing you would like to apply from what I've just said. God's speaking something to you, it would be good to act on it later on. Speak to someone about it, love a conversation with you, but don't walk away without taking something personally from this. So look, to summarise, our, our culture is busy and tired. We're very much like light, Lightning McQueen, jumping across the finish line with our tongue sticking out. There's an order in how we work and rest. Uh, Sorry, there is an order in how work and rest work best in both creation and Christ. And as we work from a place of rest rather than rest from a place of work, we enter the patterns of Jesus each week, each day, each year. There's a rhythm. And there are a number of ways to apply this principle in your own life to work from a place of rest, to put rest first as a priority in life. And to trust that God will make you productive as you enter into that rest. And to do that, one idea, and it's just a life hack, is to book your holidays before you book your rest each year. Very simple. But you can apply very similar principles to both the weekly perspective and the daily perspective. So, um, before we head into communion, there is one very important last point that I would like to make. And it is absolutely critical that I share it. It's absolutely critical that you own it and hear it. I really want to pass this on. So it relates to the scripture that I unpacked last service, um, which is Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30. I want to read this one more time. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if you remember from last time, and if you weren't here, I'll be very brief in explaining this. There are two key applications that I described from this passage. One 
is that there is a pattern of Jesus. That as we learn to walk in the, the yoke of Jesus, it means that we walk alongside Jesus like a younger ox with an older ox. We walk in a pattern. There's a rhythm. There's a walking in time with Jesus. So basically we are learning to imitate him and to follow his rhythm and to walk in his ways. And as we do that, we become more like him daily, weekly and annually. So really, I've been talking today about the annual patterns of Jesus and the order of Jesus. Yeah, that's been the focus. But this scripture is not just about patterns. It's about person. If we have the patterns of Jesus, Im imitating his life, but we don't have the person of Jesus who we worship, then we don't have anything. We get stuck. Now, it's interesting. If you only have the person of Jesus, not only, if you worship Jesus but don't obey his pattern, you also get stuck. So we actually need both. But... But I really want to end with the person of Jesus because one of the risks of a sermon like the one I've just shared, which is practical and that gives practical advice on how to live differently, is that you can end up thinking that it's a self-help sermon. That at the end of the day, you just have to add one more thing to your life. If you book your holidays before you book your rest and have the right mindset, then everything's tickety-boo and off we go. We're never going to be busy again. And not only that, you can also walk away just feeling more burdened. Oh no, now there's another thing that I've never even thought of that. Now I realise I'm sinning in terms of my work and my rest. I have to put on holidays before I book it. I'm like, oh, I'm feeling more burdened. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying you just have to add something else to your already busy load, all the things that people say you have to do in order to be loved by Jesus. So you don't need more of that. So we live in a secular world. And our secular world says that we need to save ourselves. Save yourself. You save yourself by designing your life, by following your heart, by managing and manicuring your image, by doing all the right things. You have to get fit, you have to be beautiful, you have to get a good job, you have to be an engaged parent, you have to give kids sporting opportunities, you have to take them to piano lessons, they have to have a good education, they have to enjoy eating, I don't know, chia seeds. Um, you have to say the right things, you have to not say the wrong things, especially nowadays. There are so many wrong things that we shouldn't say, it's terrible. Um, you must look the right way, you have to save the environment and care for it. You need to eat no sugar, sugar's bad. You need to enjoy organic coffee, you need to save money, you need a great sex life, you need to have all the right technologies and be tech savvy. You have to live by the beach, you have to love music, you have to you know, enjoy single malt whiskey, you have to know the difference between a summer ale and maybe an IPA. There are so many things that you have to do just to be a human nowadays, just to be okay because we have to save ourselves in a secular culture and invent our own path and do it on our own, by ourselves, in ourselves. You know what I mean? There's so much. There's so many yokes put on our shoulder day by day. There are pressures to conform and pressures to perform, to meet certain standards, to be politically correct, to make the right choices. And by goodness, if you don't make the right choices in a secular culture as an individual, well, then it is your fault. It's no one else's fault except for yours because you're an individual and you should have followed your heart. That is the message of secularism. And it is draining. It creates this ambient anxiety that just makes us not just feel busy by what we do, we feel busy and exhausted because of the burden and the yoke that is put on our shoulder by consumerism and by the culture around us that says we need to save ourselves. It makes me mad. And it's exhausting, and it's not the burden I want you to have tonight. 
You follow? So it is not my message that you have to be or do anything to be loved by Jesus. I'm not saying that if you feel busy or overworked, if you feel anxious, tired or overwhelmed, I'm not saying it's your fault. I'm not saying you have to do anything or be anyone to be loved and accepted and blessed by the person of Jesus. The pattern is a great idea to follow. It's a good idea, even a great idea, to follow the patterns of Jesus, to follow the pattern of creation and of Christ. And yet, it won't transform you without the person of Jesus, and it certainly won't save you. So our identity is not in what we do or don't do. Our identity is in the person of Jesus. And he loves us just as we are, and we don't have to do or be anything to receive from him, which is why we're going to celebrate with communion. And I actually feel very strongly that I, I was praying about this, and just before we head to communion, I actually want to pray a prayer for us. And I actually want to bind the spirit of secular exhaustion. I want to bind the spirit of exhaustion, of laying things on ourselves to save ourselves, which is not from God. And I actually want to bind the spirit of self-design, of self-invention and self-reliance, and free you from those burdens and those expectations and free you from those false responsibilities in the name of Jesus. Amen? All right. So to finish, I read this quote from a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I read it this week and it connected with me and I just want to finish with this. The Bible does not spin the flaws and weaknesses of its heroes... Moses, the great hero Moses, he was a murderer. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. Peter rebuked God. Noah got drunk. Jonah was a racist. Jacob was a liar. John Mark deserted Paul. Elijah, poor Elijah, he was busy. He got burnt out. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. Thomas doubted. Moses had a temper. Timothy had ulcers. And all of these people send the same message that every human being on earth regardless of their gifts and strengths, is weak, vulnerable and dependent on God and on others. So basically all the saints were broken and so are we. We are not the creator. We are the created. We are not to save ourselves. We are to be human. We are not to work ourselves to death. We are to trust in Jesus and allow him to start our lives with rest and to trust that he will get everything we need done as we follow his order. And that, I believe, is good news. So, I'd love you to stand with me if that's okay. We're going to have communion in a moment. So you can stay still. <laughs>